All right, Tom Shepstone with us here. It is Natural Gas Now, correct, is the name of the website? That's right, naturalgasnow.org. Dot org, that's right. I got to pull it up here because I wanted to see what the lead story is, but I've been following some of the stories that you had. And I, I Actually, there was a story you had out a couple days ago I saw on LinkedIn, and I never know if it's from you or from one of your other people, but it had to do with uh, basically the subsidy war is over or the losing proposition and the subsidies, something like That's that. That's correct. That was a post we reposted actually from the Institute of uh, Energy Research, and I thought it was I thought it was very good because it got at the whole idea that uh, you know these. Uh, I think it was Herbert Stein said when he worked for. Reagan or one of those, one of our presidents said, uh, you know, uh, at some point you run out of other people's money. Well, I know Margaret Thatcher said, said that too, but, uh, um, you know, the, the subsidies have gone on for so long. I mean, it's just becoming patently obvious at this point that it can't continue. And a lot of states have ratcheted them down and, and the federal government is appearing to want to do that as well. Although that could change if the, the final results of the election aren't, you know, what I hope they would be. But. And this was the uh, Institute for Energy Research. Research. Right. Okay. They're, and they're an ahead. industry group, and uh, they uh, they've actually got three sites. Uh, one is the, uh, the the institute's own site, and then there's the the founder of the group has a site called Master Resource, and then there's a a political. Um, group as well called American Energy Alliance. So uh, we, we, we repost stuff from all three from time to time. So election, uh, what'd you make of the election? Do you believe it's over? Do you think Trump's still going to win? I guess where, where are you at with the election talk? Well, I'm not going to be so bold as to say I think he's, that I, I, I think he's going to win. I don't know. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. Um, and I think he's got a real shot. Alan Dershowitz, I think was on yesterday or some someplace saying, you know, he's got three different routes he can go, legally speaking. And um, uh, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's clear as a bell that there was massive uh, fraud. I mean, the mail-in ballots were, were just the most terrible idea imaginable. And uh, COVID served as the excuse, and clearly it invited fraud. I mean, we got four ballots sent to our home in Pennsylvania. Four ballots! And we didn't, we didn't use any of them, you know, but um, uh, you can see how easy it was to do the, to do fraud, you know, it's just, uh, and we didn't request them, you know, they were mailed to, they were mailed to everybody in Pennsylvania who had an address at one time or another, and, um, you know, you know how it works. So, uh, so I, uh, my hope is that Trump will win, and even if he doesn't win, I hope he will fight it, as uh, John Voigt said, uh, and, and um, before him, uh, Muhammad Ali said, to the last punch. It certainly seems like they are. I mean, he's still yeah. soliciting for campaign funds, except for it's kind of switched to lawyer funds now, it looks like, because they're fighting right. all these different right. court battles. And and then I'll, you know, I'll get an email, hey, we've won in Georgia, or we've won in Pennsylvania, or something like that, the courts. And so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's... You, you, you're in the media, so you, you know as well as I do that there, there's just something about this that just seems like it's not over yet. Correct. And, and I don't know what that means. Well. 
I don't know what that means, but it just seems like we're just yep. it's just yep. not done at this at this juncture. It's just there's something more to come. Well, it, 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 it was a month, maybe a month ago. Uh, maybe it was prior. I think it was just prior to the election. That uh, uh, so it wasn't quite a month ago. But I remember reading someplace that uh, somebody said, "I I don't think that 2020 is done yet." Surprising us. So I. I and uh, I believe that to be true still today. That 2020 is not done surprising us. So we'll see. Well, who knows? You're out there in Pennsylvania, right on the New York border, if my memory serves me correct. You're, That's correct. And so you've, you're, you're in the heart of, uh, you know, coal and, you know, Pennsylvania uh, energy, as well as I hate energy right. from New York and, and Pennsylvania blue folk. So... It's it's an interesting you know neighbors you got there. Um, we're right in the maelstrom. You know, yeah. But, uh, um, and you're right. We're right next door to the uh, you know to the one of the well the, the best shale region in the country really, which is the uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, Susquehanna County. That's uh, that's where you know that's the biggest gas producing county there is really, uh, and right next to it's Bradford, which is also huge. So. The, um, but we can't drill in my, my home county, but we're right next door, you know. Um, and then right on the other side of us is New York State, where, which is a, a hopeless case of a, of a state descending into uh, the netherworld, you know. It's just, uh, well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, Pennsylvania got beat up pretty good in the coal uh, industry with the with the jobs losses and that economy, and then of course New York uh, implemented that. I think they didn't they get rid of natural gas or fracking, or they just flat oh, yeah, out. Yeah, they put a, they put a, a ban, a permanent ban. So you know, they're, they're, I guess those industries kind of got hit over the last decade before you know COVID and before the Whiting Chesapeake layoffs last year and all that other stuff. So. Uh, what, what, what's the vibe like out there, whether it's Biden or Trump or just for the oil and gas industry in general, what's the vibe out there on the East Coast? Well, I think it's, I, I think it's uh, you know, some cautious optimism. I mean, people are frustrated by the low prices, but they haven't been so low recently. I mean, they're back up to around $3. And, and the, 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 the smart and nimble companies are able to make money at $3. You know? So... Um, you mentioned Chesapeake. Uh, Chesapeake was a was a bloated company, and uh, and it had to, you know, it it couldn't it couldn't go on uh, as long and survive because it just wasn't in a, in a position to be competitive. Uh, whereas a, a Cabot Oil and Gas is smaller, more nimble, uh, more careful with its money, you know, more adaptable, more flexible, uh, and I think they're doing just fine. You know, so. Uh, certainly, they can make money. At, they they can make money at two dollar gas. Now, of course, we were below that for a little bit, but but uh, now it's back up to three, and uh, I'm sure they're building their cash back up, and they'll be back at it shortly. You know? yeah. Not that they've discontinued altogether; they haven't. But what was the final uh, on that pipeline out there? Dominion had did that. I think did did Warren Buffett buy that, or somebody picked that up? Yeah, right? I believe he did. I, that that one's. Um, um, did, he has bought one of the pipelines and invested in it, which you know always makes me suspicious. Um, he's uh, you know he's a train guy more than a pipeline guy, but I guess he's hedging his bets now. You know, so uh, we had two major pipelines uh, uh, through the um, 
West Virginia down through, you know, Virginia. One was the Atlantic Coast, which is, that may have been, I'm trying to remember if that was the Dominion one or not. But anyway, that that has been put aside for the moment. Um, and the and one of the others has been, uh, Warren Buffett has invested in apparently. So uh, we'll see what happens. Um, he's, uh, I'm not a big Buffett fan. I don't know what you think. He's obviously active out there in the back and, um, uh, you know, hauling oil, you know, in our direction, which is fine you know, for me. With mm-hmm. BNSF? Yeah, yeah. right. And yeah, I, very- I, when he bought that pipeline out in the East Coast, that's, um, I don't know. I, I, I think some of these guys sometimes, they're, they, they're on a different level of insider trading because oh, yeah. on yeah. one hand, they're telling you that this industry is going to be awful and then companies buy and then they go buy them up. So it, yeah, exactly. You know, I, he's been doing that for He's been doing that forever, you know. I mean, yeah. he, and his uh, his son has the Novo Foundation. His son Peter Buffett has this, uh, you know, typical trust funder. He inherits, uh, you know, all the or he's the uh, the benefactor of the old man's uh, money. And uh, and Warren and apparently Warren Buffett doesn't live that extravagantly, but he's you know he's made a lot of money, given a lot of money away, and he's put a lot of it under the Novo Foundation, which is. Uh, run by his son, a trust funder. And, you know, his son is investing in all kinds of radical politics, radical anti-energy politics. And then next thing we find out is, you know, Buffett is, <laughs> not only is he shipping oil by train, but now he wants to ship stuff by pipeline, too. So, so I think it's exactly what you're talking about. That's why he didn't want to have uh, amendments to the inheritance laws, either. You know, he he loved the people who were forced to sell out it. Upon the the uh, death of a you know the death of a founder you know so because then he'd get it cheap. Well, I did want to ask you about shale power. I saw that on your social media posts as well. Check it yeah. out naturalgasnow.org. and uh, shale power. It seems to be some sort of initiative put together by a few states to try to get some uh, economic resurgence going uh, through. I guess it would be through the shale power. So talk to me about yeah, what right. that post is. Trying to leverage the power of the shale, um, and we're seeing more and more of that happen. I mean, Pennsylvania passed some landmark legislation. I mean, the governor was sort of forced to accept it because there was an overwhelming majority uh, among the legislators to pass it that, that essentially uh, provides some tax credits for companies that would invest based on a shale. And they were, uh, as long as they used a certain amount of natural gas, they would get a certain amount of uh, tax credits uh, with respect to the investment they've made. So it isn't costing anybody any any uh, taxes. I should, uh, it, what it's doing is it's taking, giving them a break from some of the taxes they will pay. So, um, because of their investment. So, I think what you're seeing is a lot of people are now jumping on that bandwagon and saying, well, let's, let's uh, really see what we can do with this shale. Let's see what we can, what kind of investments we can spur in our economy based on it, because it is one of our most fantastic resources. And Pennsylvania is the number two um, uh, natural gas producer in the country. And with some of our counties being the number one counties, you know, so. Um, so it's a very, very good thing to see the, the, uh, 
the educational institutions joining hands with the industry and promoting this kind of activity. Tom Shepstone, Natural Gas Now. He also puts on uh, posts and articles and summaries from other educators and advocates as well as other reporters and, and writers as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm looking at one from Jim Willis from uh, Marcellus Drilling News. Right. Uh, Jim, Jim's good a great friend of mine. Oh, good. Yeah, he's, he, he does a really good job, actually, as kind of an old-school reporter, I think. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And he's got the best nose for news. I mean, he, I've, I've told him that many times. And he's, he's really uh, got his ear close to the ground with his sources. And, uh, and he's particularly good. His, his, his blog is a little different emphasis than mine. Uh, in that he re- reports a lot of financial news, and you know he's really good at sniffing that stuff out. You know, checking out the transcripts of uh, you know financial calls and things like that. And, uh, he really reveals a lot of great news. He reminds me of this guy we used to have in uh, when I worked at a radio station. We had a good court reporter, a guy that would just uh-huh. sit and read the transcripts and. You know, he couldn't he, he couldn't do much else, but you could do that really well, and that was a really yeah. important role. That was a really important part of the whole, you know, news no team. Question. And so he, yeah. And Jim kind of reminds me of that he he just he really does well in the areas that he specializes in. And I've never seen mm-hmm. him go in other areas, so he probably yeah. would exceed in those too. But the article I'm referring to is the one about the the lateral just keeps oh, yeah. getting longer as gas footprints shrink and. It says here the well has a horizontal lateral that reaches 19,883 feet or 3.8 miles. Have we gotten <laughs> have we gotten them to that far now? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible? I mean, it's just it's hard to imagine, you know. And uh, I added the part about the footprint uh, to the title and and did a little explanation down at the bottom. But the uh, to me, this is this is so fascinating because I have long maintained, you know, when I first got, let me back up, when I first got involved in this, we were still talking about, you know, uh, units uh, of like 160 acres, 160 acres, which meant, you know, one well, one well pad for every 160 acres, and then you'd run laterals out from that well pad. Then it, then it went to 640, then it went to 1280, and I don't know where it is now in terms of acreage. I mean, when you, when you, when you go 3.8 miles out, I mean, it's an immense amount of acreage. And what that means is, you know, you're recovering the economic value under an ever-growing piece of land with an ever-smaller uh, footprint proportionally. You know, um, I, and I've long maintained that this is how you preserve farms and open space. You you find a way to recover the economic value from that land. And, uh, and gas drilling, oil drilling for that matter, is uh, with shale is one of the most uh, amazing ways to do that because the amount of disturbance involved is just minuscule and getting getting smaller all the time. It's incredible. Did I see where this was a, a record or something along those lines or no? Yeah, yeah, I believe it was. And they're talking about going up to five miles now. So uh, that'll be the next, uh, that'll be the next uh, bear, uh, threshold that'll be shattered, you know, there. Barrier that be it's just absolutely incredible, and and I never thought of it that from that perspective before. When you when you're harvesting economic activity under the the ground that yeah. once did before, 
you know, that type yeah. of thing. That's... And think about other economic activity. I mean, you know, with agriculture, you, you can't do that with agriculture. You can't do it with forestry. And I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of both those industries. But And you can't do it with, uh, really, with uh, any other type of economic development. But underground, capturing that economic value, you can do it with just the barest touch of the earth, you know, the barest touch of the earth. Well, what do you guys got planned for next year? Um, are, have you guys made many changes uh, to what your daily operations are to prepare for next year? Or? Well, I think all the companies are are uh, you know hedging their bets right now. I think I think uh, uh, building cash back up is the main thing right now, um, and and that's not you know you know how the industry is. The industry is a boom and bust type thing, and it's commodity enterprise and so it's the same with agriculture it's the same with steel you know when you're when you're talking about uh, commodities there's always a boom and bust uh, element of those industries and it's the uh, to, to, again to use use that word nimble again it's those companies that are nimble that are prepared for that and uh, don't invest you know, over-invest on the theory that it's going to go on forever the way it is today, those companies survive because they're prepared. You know, they can, they can react quickly. They can adapt. Um, it's the same with farming. Same thing. Um, the farmers who are prepared to, uh, to um, adjust and, you know, change their production and do it quickly and, and adapt, those are the ones that survive. How about 2020, looking back, uh, anything that stands out in terms of uh, either major theme outside of the COVID theme? Um, in your eyes? Well, I mean, there's a lot of things. Boy, you can go from oh, many layoffs to energy. all kinds of things. I would say on the energy level, I think there's been a quite a change in the attitude of uh, – uh, environmentalists, not not that they're not still opposed to everything we do and all that, but we we aren't debating water quality anymore. That battle is so so won now. <laughs> you know, it's so much behind us, and I think 2020 sort of revealed that. And uh, as we talked about when we started this this phone conversation, the uh, you know things have changed, and people are are accepting this, and they're trying to build off it now. They're recognizing that it's an industry to stay. People aren't really talking about, in 2020, trying to uh, get rid of the industry. Some are, you know, that are you know, the, the, the national nutcases, so to speak. But, but I, I don't see it. You know, the, the big the names that we used to throw around as being, you know, the ultimate fractivists here, you know, regionally, they're not even active anymore. They're not even, they're not even out there, you know. So um, I think that's something I've really noticed this year. I think we've won a lot of battles, and uh, there's a recognition that, hey, this is an industry that's going to be here. Uh, we saw it with the election. I mean, look at what Biden did. I mean, he, um, he stuck his, you know, uh, stuck his foot in it um, numerous times with numerous things. But, but he, you know, he came out with that, uh, you know, I'm going to ban fracking. I'm not going to ban fracking. Well, I might ban fracking. Well, I'll, I'll ban it here, then, but not there. You know, all those kinds of things. I mean, he was really, he really had to change his position numerous times because he was getting so much heat, and he he never could sustain the anti-fracking position. 
uh, and even Kamala Harris, who's a radical to the core, uh, and had, had talked about absolutely banning you know oil and gas everywhere for everything, and uh, so many words. I mean, even she was forced to say, "No, no, we're not doing that." You know, so um, that was the, the amazing thing about 2020 to me that we we saw everything revealed in terms of the the whole fracking debate that it's over it's over and uh we're I've moving on i never thought of it but you just brought up an excellent excellent point which is joe biden i believe does represent the average person when it comes to the anti uh uh, uh the, the climate activist which is big talker when we're around a bunch of rooms, we're going to, you know, living in the planet of platitudes, we're going to talk big, ban this, ban that, have this aggressive language, whatever. And then when you get to the realm of reality, because remember, the planet of platitudes, you can do whatever you want. Then you get to the realm of reality, and then you, and then you start realizing, oh, well, I guess we can't really do that. That is such a true sentiment to the average person when they go from being the you know, oh, we got to save Mother Earth by banning fracking to coming to the realization about, number one, the amount of environmental innovations that the energy industry has brought to the table, and number two, just the sheer reality of, yeah. of how this fear-mongering and doomsday, you know, nature is just, it's, it's overblown, in my opinion. That's, that, that's what I think. I, I totally agree. And there's something else that I'm, I'm right now reading a book called uh, Apocalypse Never, which <laughs> I highly recommend. It's, uh, it's a book by Michael, a fellow by the name of Michael Schellenberger, who was your classic, uh, you know, liberal leftist type when he was young, and, uh, and still has those leanings, clearly. But, the, but what he's done is he's, you know, completely reevaluated his position with respect to environment and energy issues, completely. He's a big fan of nu uh, nuclear energy, by the way. But, but he's also a um, he's, he's not at least as far as I've read, uh, read yet. He's not adamantly anti oil and gas. As a matter of fact, he recognizes that in the real world, uh, oil and gas, you know, helps deal with all the things that he that he's always been concerned about. And he, you know, he uses. He uses Africa and, and uh, Indonesia and places like that for a lot of his examples. And he points out that, that you know, it just isn't realistic to try to impose these crazy solutions. Um, uh, for example, he talks about Peter Buffett. Peter Buffett you know, invested in Africa, in, in the Congo, in a uh, hydroelectric dam, which is, a, which is kind of a nice idea, you know, generate some energy for these folks so they don't have to go out and burn down the forest to make charcoal or, or whatever. And uh, that was the idea. That's what motivated him. And he thought, well, we'll supply we'll find them another way to supply electricity. Well, the, it, it worked to a point, but what happened was the only people who could afford the electricity were the rich people who didn't really need it, you know. So the, because they had other options. And, the, uh, and, he, and he concludes you know, we've got to, the only way we're going to save the environment is to improve the economy of these for these people. And therefore, we've got to let them have, you know, oil and gas, and they've got to be able to develop and prosper and, and uh, industrialize. And I thought, what a, you know, it's, it's refreshing to read it because you can see how this man has evolved over a period of about two decades, you know. So, um, and I think you're seeing, I think you're seeing that, that realism 
pop up here and there among the environmental movement, and it's very, very healthy. I did want to get your thoughts on kind of a speculative 5,000 foot view thing. You know, you're a, you're, you're a trained journalist. And, um, so I, I, I kind of respect your mind on that aspect to kind of layer some things in, which, you know, you, there, there is a skill to that. So, um, and anybody can just do, you know, our armchair quarterbacking and, you know, you, you tend to bring a little bit more than just that. So, um, one of the things I've been tracking is I, I call it uh, being defined by defection. Well, one of the concerns I have for the oil and gas industry is that if they're losing six-figure jobs and you know laying people off, and my concern is is that if if we're if the media and, and the effect, uh, elected officials, for the most part, are allowing this public shaming of oil and gas mm-hmm. to happen. Mm-hmm. If somebody's not being paid six figures a year by an energy company, I don't know if they're going to stand up for them. So I, I'm concerned that if this layoffs and the, the momentum happens the way it, it has been, you know, Greta's got a documentary now on Hulu, um, just all kinds of different things like that that right. t- 2021 could be defined by defection. And that, that, to me, is the one thing, if I'm the oil and gas industry, I might be keeping an eye on. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just your thoughts on that, I guess. Well, I think that's a very interesting question. I, uh, I, I kind of look at it a slightly different way. P- please do. Uh, in the sense, <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, what, I, what I see is the, the, the biggest of the companies, like a BP, for example, um, they, they, they are operating under the premise that, uh, well, we just need to, we need to, uh, appease these radicals and we need to, uh, surrender to them in, on the surface so that we can continue doing what we've, what we've always done. And, uh, or we can, we can alternatively find a new place to put some of our money, which is in seeking government rent for solar and wind and other crazy, you know, schemes. So. The, that's where I see the problem. You know, the smaller companies aren't, don't lean that way, but the bigger companies do. Their, their attitude is throw some words and some money at them and, uh, and, uh, we'll be the last uh, eaten by the crocodile, so to speak, you know, so, uh, and we'll have the opportunity to maybe kill that crocodile, you know, so that's the way that that's the way these bigger companies think. And I, and I, I do think that's a threat. When I see BP just selling its soul, really, to uh, to the radical environmentalists and, and uh, generating all this stuff, which is then used against the industry, um, it's it's very cynical on their part because they know that it's going to kill some of the smaller companies that are their competitors. You know? So you you can appreciate that dynamic and. Uh, Actually, I can, and and I was gonna actually offer you a uh, example that, well, yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, I sent you the uh, link to the transcript for the industrial forest, and oh yeah, I loved it. And yeah, and and actually, the reason that the industrial forest was created, it was partially created to help the industry with some PR. You know that that uh-huh. whole thing. Hey, look at us. We're we're developing this, you know, network of forests, and you know, and each tree will be sponsored by a 
by an industry yeah. company. And yeah, that's that's not new, you know, that type of thing. What's new yeah. about the industrial forest that nobody else is doing is, did you know half of the trees that were planted in the last 20 years by these nonprofit tree planting organizations or even your city government, over half of them had died? So, yeah, sure. Yeah, they're they're not watering them every day. They're not they're not doing the things that you need to do in order to sustain them. So they right. they, they do exactly what you just mentioned. BP and some of the big corporations are doing. They're just platituding it, you know, flying yep. in their private yep. jets. Talk about hey, we save the environment and fly out on their private jets. So yeah. Yeah. with the industrial forest, we actually are going to some of these oil and gas companies now and saying you need to find out what the sustainability plan is for these tree planting companies because um, XYZ Energy Company, you have a 90-page sustainability plan now to give to your shareholders. Somebody's going to call out your your bullshit pretty soon. And it's it's starting to happen. And that's why we decided to partner with the Industrial Forest because they're adding that sustainability aspect, which is every one of these forests... They're going to have a shed built so that there's always going to be water for the first year on these. On these, So they're going to build a critical pipeline system. Don't you like that Orwellian term? Yeah, I love it. I love critical it. pipeline system. To say, well, when you think about it, though, the critical pipeline system is actually going to save the uh, um, trees from dying. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so we're going to use the oil and gas industry to save the earth. And I love yeah. it because I'm like, look at this. Here's another problem that the planet of platitudes created in the realm of reality known as industry is going to solve another problem. I love it. This gets back to something you and I have talked about before in other, other programs have come together, and that is that the oil and gas industry is, is tremendously uh, responsive to things and uh, adaptive in the sense that, you know, the there's there's a challenge that arises, uh, they jump up and meet it, you know, and typically with a, a very practical type of uh, solution. And uh, and you don't see that in a lot of, you know, things, particularly in politics. Nobody's practical in politics. Um, and it's, it's really, it's so heartwarming and refreshing to, to work in the industry, or know people in the industry, I should say, I guess, that just approach everything like a, a challenge to be solved. And, uh, and I'm talking about the, not the, the BPs of the world, but I'm talking about the Cabots and the, some of those companies that are, they just say, Oh, we got this problem with, well, here, let's do this, you know, that kind of a thing. And you and I've talked about that many times. And it's, it's just one of the features of the industry that is just so attractive, uh, uh, to me. And, uh, we, and you don't see that in, 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 in so many things. And it, it's really a wonder. I, I often think this. It's a wonder the world survives, given all the the dishonesty, the as you say, the platitudes, the, the all the, the phoniness of so many things, and yet somehow it survives. And I think it survives because of uh, you know, uh, in my mind, basic uh, cultural values that we've inherited, but also because of this reservoir of talent from with people who know how to do things okay and who just cut through the bs you know? so that's my view 
the one thing that I've seen about the oil and gas industry, this is really what drew me to the oil and gas industry, is just the sheer capitalism it brings. And, and, oh, yeah. And any time that you can have a roughneck with maybe a high school education, but uh-huh. he just happens to be a really talented, instinctive engineer. And every day no looking at a vibrating tube for five years, he figures out how to make that vibrating tube go twice as fast for twice as cheap. Yep. And yep. all of a sudden, a year later, that barely high school graduations, the CEO and president of a 15-man operation with a small little shop and everything. Uh, God bless America, baby. I love that. That's just my kind of... I do, too. Yeah, I because... Too. You know, there's, a, there's a company out here that is now um, making some waves in, central, in western Pennsylvania called CNX. And um, CNX... Um, is led by a guy by the name of Nick, Nick Delulius, I think is the way you pronounce his name. And uh, if you have a chance, check check him out, the CEO of CNX, which is a, he's just such an outspoken guy, and his history is exactly like that, exactly like that. You know, raised in a blue-collar, you know, family, uh, and uh, has risen to become the, the CEO of this company, and unafraid, completely unafraid to call it the way it is. I, I urge you and your listeners to check him out. He's got several speeches that are uh, uh, online. He's just written a book called Leeches, <laughs> which is, which is uh, you know, uh, a tome on the, the whole idea that uh, people are trying to, to live off uh, sucking up government rent rather than, you know, being true capitalists. You know? So, um, wonderful guy and really to me the epitome of the kind of american we need to produce a lot more of and what was his name again nick delulius it's a it's a funny name it's uh nicholas delulius it's d i think it's d e l u l l i s something like that with a d um, with a d with a d yeah. okay cuz you, you know there was an old jeff galuli and any but who's ever watched Letterman from the '90s and 2000s knows that name, Jeff Galuli. Oh yeah, but yeah. Uh, it was it was Deluli. Yeah, well, check check him out. Yeah. All you need to do is go to CNX, and, uh, and uh, he has his own site too for his book, and puts out columns, and he's done a number of great speeches. And uh, I would really, I would direct all your listeners to uh, check him out because he's got some wonderful things to say about America, about the oil and gas industry. And about you know uh, the climate movement, so to speak. I forget the term he uses, but uh, uh, it's not a, it's not an endearing term, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, about the whole climate movement, you know, and, and what it really is. Um, so check him out. I tell you, it is an interesting movement. Um, Terry Edom, my good friend up in Calgary, Canada, he's the author of the end of the fossil fuel insanity. He calls them climate activists. And that's yeah. probably the most accurate term I've heard for a journalist to use. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, instead of environmentalists and that sort of thing, because like, like he was pointing out years ago, most of the people in the energy industry are the number one environmentalists he's ever met. And he's being serious, you know, he's not being yeah, facetious sure. and, that sort of, well, I don't know too many environmentalists that are, you know, making making cars cleaner and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, I had a conversation earlier with a state senator in Colorado. They've got some they got some real issues in Colorado now with this new oh, yeah, this new special interest group that's disguised as a government agency. Um, oh, I know. 
Holy smokes. Did you see that email, uh, that um, news story where they got, they sent out an email accidentally where they have code names for all the oil companies with derogatory names. No, I did not see that. No. So the state government agency, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Instead of, you know, uh, uh, you know, Devon oil, it's snake oil, you know, snake and things. Uh, right. And that's a government agency doing that. And yeah. To me, I look at that, and that's why I say it's almost more of a special interest group appointed by the governor, um, mm-hmm. because that just shows the tone of it. But anyway, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, I, I lived out in California for a year, uh, going to school out there for at Fullerton, and uh, boy, I was in Santa Monica, and I didn't even know there was a, there that there was a, a mountain right next to it, because there was so much smog, and he brought up back when he was living in Denver, the brown cloud, and you know, uh, Pittsburgh used to have that old steel mill in- industry vibe about it. I guess that's what right. we were told and everything. You know, just in my lifetime, I personally have seen the innovations clean the air from the cars to the steel mills to, you know, you name it. And it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing that more people haven't absorbed that, I guess. Well, visit a well pad. Visit a well pad. I mean... You you can you can see all the precautions they're taking with all the the, uh, the procedures and the 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 way it's laid out with the to make sure nothing you know leaves that site. I mean it's 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 pretty incredible and uh, more people should do that. More people should visit these things and see what they're all about and how you know the precautions they take. It's amazing. Well, what uh, what do you guys got planned for? In the near future, here, how can people uh, support your business? And uh, let's let's find out a little bit about natural gas now as we conclude here. Yeah, sure. Well, natural gas now has been around since 2013, and we we put out uh, about uh, usually a couple of posts a day, uh, except Sunday. Now I've kind of given up on Sundays, but because uh, I decided I need a little break. But uh, the uh, we normally put out about two posts a day, and we're we're very much an advocate for the natural gas industry. Now, I do look at other industries. Uh, uh, you know, we look at oil, for example. We, we spend a lot of time uh, examining the, the falsehoods behind the renewable industry, too. We, because I think that's essential for people to understand this is a big scam, a lot of it. I, you know, I'm not against uh, uh, solar per se. I mean, you, somebody wants to put solar panels on the roof, uh, good for them. But don't, don't ask me to pay for it, you know. Um, and uh, we do a lot analyzing the economics of it, and, and a lot of educational things, I think, where we talk about the fact that uh, you know, what's key is not just energy, but you have to have dispatchable energy, energy that you can call on within an hour, and it'll be there. And that only happens with things like nuclear energy, oil and gas, uh, hydroelectric, hydroelectric uh, although we can't do much more of that in the country because uh, the the environmental opposition to new dams is tremendous. So it really comes down to nuclear or um, uh, oil and gas. And, and nuclear has its own uh, set of uh, opponents. It's not particularly economic, which is why they're, they're now in the subsidy game. They've kind of joined solar and wind and trying to suck up that government rent. Um, so oil and gas is, the, is, is, is ultimately you know, the, best, the best solution for um, dispatchable energy that you can call upon when you need it. If, you, if you're if you going to do solar or wind, you know, you, you, 
you can in some cases do it. And maybe someday you'll be able to do it economically. We're not there yet. I can assure you that. But maybe someday there will, we'll be able to do it. Uh, but until there's actually large, the ability to store large-scale amounts of energy, I mean, really large-scale, uh, you, you've got to have an alternative source which is dispatchable, that can be called upon the moment you need it. And that has to come from oil and gas, uh, which is the, the one thing that you can do that. You can turn it on, and within an hour, uh, typically, you're going to have more energy. So... Uh, the bat, you can't do storage right now. I know there's a lot of proposals out there and a lot of people saying it's coming. Uh, we're going to have, uh, you know, 300 megawatts of storage or this or that. But you need a massive amount of it. You, and it's just not, it's not feasible. I mean, even Bill Gates, who I'm no fan of, uh, uh, says, you know, it's just, when you really sit down and analyze it, there's just no way. It can't work. It's ancient technology, really. So um, that's where I stand on it. 